It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Here on the podcast, we bring you the best bits of my Times Radio show. We bring you the big thing, which we do at 11 o'clock every day on Times Radio, uh, plus the columnist panel, uh, Times columnist picking over the news. But if you want to listen to the whole show, you can join me from 10 till 1 on Times Radio, Monday to Friday. And you can get us on your DAB radio and your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app, where you can also listen to the Redbox Podcast. So it all uh, joins up. If you want to come on the radio, and why wouldn't you, Fanny, uh, you can play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? It's very straightforward. There are 10 questions, very loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get in our cabinet. So if you want to come on and do that, email me now with your name and, crucially, your phone number so we can call you back. Email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Now, coming up on today's podcast, it's Armistice Day, the 11th of the 11th. So after marking the two-minute silence at 11 o'clock, we took a look back at the stories of some of the MPs who served during the first and second... Morning, India. Morning. And in the studio with me is James Mowitz. James, how are you? Good morning. Hello. I'm all right. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was a bit robotic. Um... No, it's very natural. It's absolutely fine. Um, So um, we are talking about... (laughs) That might be. That's going straight in the Christmas montage of best snorting. Make a note of that. Um, uh, Let's talk about uh, MPs. Do because uh, MP, MPs disgracing themselves seems to be the theme of the last week with you know lobbying and uh, and whatever else. Um, MPs uh, having a dressing down for being f- uh, drunk on this flight uh, to Gibraltar. Uh, should they should should they be given a dressing down? Are we being a bit um, uh, prudish about all of this, India? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, people are always complaining that MPs aren't in touch with normal people's lives. Um, and normal people, I observe whenever I'm at the airport, sometimes quite like having a pint at eight in the morning before boarding their flight. Um, and they're, they're, they travel as, as private citizens. I mean, it's not a good look, obviously, and it's a particularly bad look to have to be wheelchaired out. And if they were drunk, I really, really hope that they just say, you know, they got bladdered for a laugh rather than blame medication or or deny being inebriated. But really, I think this is a kind of very good and appealing dead cat story. You know, we've got all this terrible, toxic stuff coming out of Sandhurst. We've got the murder of Agnes Wanjiru in Kenya in 2012. She was a 21-year-old young woman who had a child who was murdered by a British soldier and whose body was flung in a septic tank. The Sunday Times has done 
brilliant and stomach-churning reporting on this for the last couple of weeks. Um, the British Army don't seem to be able to do anything about that. Um, it's been nearly 10 years. They say they assist the Kenyan police and so on, but nothing has actually happened. So if I were Ben Wallace, I would uh, make good use of the story of the drunk MPs to make everybody talk about that rather than about the really terrible and substantial stuff that needs very urgent addressing. And that's, that's, what I that's I mean, that's such a good um, uh, point, India, because we've had several stories in the last week from Ben Wallace briefing that he was mm. hauling top brass in to give them a dressing down for this, that and the other. Now he's giving uh, MPs out a drink uh, on a plane, uh, you know, a dressing down as well. And and actually, you're completely right. The cultural uh, and because it, it's not you know it's the, the the story in India, in um, Kenya, Kenya is particularly terrible. It's horrendous. It's just awful. And the Sunday Times reporting of it, it has been extraordinary. But um, there were other stories in the Times last weekend. Mm. I think of the culture at Sandhurst. Yes, absolutely. Uh, where Former you know going yeah. any female recruits who went to a dinner that being groped was entirely normal. You know, racism, sexism, misogyny, all that. And so actually, yeah, punting out, uh, maybe we should be a bit cynical about all of this, James. Yeah, may, yeah, maybe. I mean, it's a kind of, um, it's an interesting line, isn't it? I, I enjoyed David Aronovich's column today about the um, how puritanical we should be about our politicians. And he argues that we should, um, we should be very careful of the kind of slippery slope argument that one minute you're ignoring, you know, you're, you're ignoring a kind of minor thing like, you know, drunkenness in a plane. And the next minute, suddenly everyone's got a lot more corrupt saying, oh, well, you know, it's worse, it's worse in foreign countries. Um, I think I have a kind of instinctive feeling that if people want to get drunk on a plane, um, that's fine. And um, they should be allowed to. They should be, I mean, speaking as a very non-fun person, I am in favour of more fun people than me having fun. Uh, but the point at which you're being wheelchaired off a plane and uh, missing your work duties the next day, uh, I think that probably that probably is a problem. Um, it's a sort of it's a weird thing, though, isn't it? Because it, it, we do with these things sort of have we, we we sort of create these weird rules about if if it's a sad day or a sad event. You know what? How how far in advance of Armistice Day must MPs be sober? Yes, exactly. And then you get to this kind of thing where every 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 possible day is a sad day. You can always look into the calendar and find it's the anniversary of something. You can punish someone for having too much fun on yeah. the anniversary of some incredibly mm -hmm. small event. I'm a bit, yeah, I think I think yeah, I think you're right. That we should be a bit skeptical of going down that route of sort of probing every possible sad occasion it could be that someone could have done something slightly appropriate and accept that you know people probably are going to have fun and you know it's not necessarily human nature to behave entirely appropriately all the time on every occasion <laughs> with relevance to every single thing that might have have an anniversary on that day because we all get a bit of that but I, mean, I get that sort of even on this show you know because we're at 11 o'clock we'll pause and we'll do the two minute silence then we've got a nice feature about uh, MPs who, who served in the first and second world wars but you know before that we're going to play a bit of Aretha Franklin and that you know and if you wanted to, you could kick up a fuss about that. You know, why, why aren't we being mm -hmm. sad uh, for long? And the same was true of sort of the Duke of Edinburgh. How long do we have to be sad for mm. uh, before it becomes, you know, in appropriate levels of sadness? Yeah, it's a real, I, I always think it's a real, like, Twitter thing as well. Because I feel before, before Twitter, you know, there would be some newspaper just saying, OK, this is, you know drawing reasonable lines about things and generally drawing reasonable lines. But with Twitter, where it's a kind of free-for-all, absolutely everybody on Twitter has something to be offended about. You know, whenever you make a joke on Twitter, someone always will decide that relative to their own personal circumstance that you could not possibly have anticipated, you have somehow offended them with relevance to these kind of incredibly obscure facts. And it's that kind of, it's that culture that worries me where, you know, everybody can get offended by something and there has to be a line where we say, you know, maybe, maybe, some, maybe, something, maybe some things are okay and maybe these are a bit minor. 
It's also the pleasure that people take in being offended. You know, I sometimes, when I was on Twitter, when I did use social media, <clears throat> which I don't anymore, you know, that you sort of sometimes get the sense that people are trawling timelines to find something to get cross about. I mean, it's a really odd, I'm saying it quite flippantly, but I think it's quite important and significant culturally. You know, it's a really odd thing, the desire to be offended and the kind of, the, the, the yearning for the, that little kind of kick of outrage that you get, it's not, it's not good. I don't think it should be encouraged. No, well, I think we've, I think we've probably ex exhausted. Let's stop talking about the MPs. Uh, there. Let's talk about your, your, <laughs> the, the much more straightforward issue of uh, culture warriors that you've written about in your column today, uh, James. Yes, yeah. I, w I woke up this morning and I was like, oh my god, why have I? I think that it's a bit of a complicated one. I was thinking, how on earth am I going to try and explain uh, my my idea about fourteenth uh, century heretics? Um, on Times Radio. Um, but the basic thesis of my column is, I've been reading this really, really interesting book, which I strongly recommend, about um, sort of mad heretics in the Middle Ages uh, called The Pursuit of the Millennium by Norman Cohn, who um, is kind of celebrated historian from the sort of uh, earlier in the 20th century. And uh, the basic thesis of his book, it's all about flagellants, uh, people seeing visions of burning angels, these kind of strange revolutionary movements in the Middle Ages. And the basic thesis of his book is that um, the single biggest predicting factor of this complete madness that was going in the Middle Ages um, was the rise of the urban poor and that basically all these incredibly mad movements uh, can be explained by economics, even if that link doesn't necessarily seem rational, that people don't respond uh, rationally to their economic circumstances. So all these people who <coughs> ended up as flagellants, uh, wandering between towns, whipping themselves and waiting for the apocalypse, you know, that was their reaction to their poverty rather than um, rather than just, you know, joining a sort of sensible movement to the redistribution of wealth. And my basic thesis was that you can apply the same thesis to the kind of madness, the culture war, and a lot of the slightly kind of... Um, bananas beliefs that end up end up floating around you think about you know QAnon and um top democratic politicians being pedophiles however mad they seem i do think all this stuff ultimately uh reduces back to economics so i was sort of why why the madness of the middle ages might tell us something about uh where we are now <laughs> maybe it's even madder no you don't very well explaining that but your your take on it um india uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting take that would never have occurred to me. <laughs> <in Sydney again>. <laughs> <laughs> very very grateful to James. It's a really, I mean, you know, the idea. I mean, yeah, I I I can see how that might work. How QAnon may stem from economic dissatisfaction. That makes perfect sense, more or less. I, I mean, I don't know how far out you can extend it to people who are not economically disadvantaged james yes well the thing is uh, the thing everyone was going on at me in the comments was like oh well um, what about all these woke people aren't they from very kind of uh well-off bourgeois backgrounds um mm. and my, my answer to that is that i think i should have emphasized more on the column that i think um i think sort of feeling of economic disadvantage is always is always relative and i think it's been measured that um i think you know inequality is in some ways worse for society than more you know absolute measures of economic disadvantage and this is the point that Norman Cohn makes in his book is that it wasn't that people hadn't been poor for the entire of the middle ages but that later on in the middle ages um, towns began to grow as the economy as the economy expanded and what this created was this whole new class of people who were very poor as they always had been in rural villages but were right next to people who were much richer mm -hmm. and that's a much more kind of toxic thing mm -hmm. to have in a society on a large scale and I, I sort of think the internet is kind of like a giant medieval town in that case. But, you know, we're all sitting next <laughs> yeah. to. I mean, that's true, that's true in lots of ways. Yes, uh, yeah, in actually. every single way with yeah, the with yeah. the with the with the public uh, humiliations and the floggings and the yeah, all that stuff. That's the best. Isn't and it? the person <clears throat> ringing their own bell, shouting "unclean, unclean." <laughs> 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 uh, finally, India. Um, there's a, a piece in Times Two today about marrying young. 
because of Mala- oh, lovely Malala. Malala's I was so done moved. it. Yeah, I was. How old is Malala? Twenty-four. I think so. 24, 25, I think 24, 24. 24, 24. Um, I thought. I thought. I was. I didn't know. I didn't know why I was so moved by um, the pictures of her on her wedding day. She got married in her parents' house in Birmingham. Um, I really, I liked the kind of modesty of the wedding as well. I liked that, you know, she's got a Nobel Prize and she's been on the cover of Vogue. And, you know, I liked that it was all so kind of little and meant, I think. Um, And good for her. I think they'll be very happy. She seems, you know, she seems, if people are going to get married young, then she seems like the sort of person who should. She's not racy, Malala. You know, I think she'll be very content. She'll be very content and very happy. And I wish her well. Come on, James. She's putting pressure on you. It's about time you got married. Yeah, I know. Well, I look at those pictures and there, I mean, Malala's like five years younger than me. And she looks, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, they just they just look so grown up. I mean, obviously, Malala really would, be, would be grown up being look... a Nobel Prize winner. Um, but I'm just like, I feel like if I tried to get married, they could just be like, you're a child. Look at your sort of <laughs> round boyish face. What are you doing? Come back in 10 years. I, got my, I, got, I was 26, I think, when I got married. Yeah, like 26. 26? That's yeah. relatively young, I think. That's quite young. That's relatively young. I was definitely like the first of my mates. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I had 10 years of attending their weddings of varying qualities. Yeah, I don't know. Anyone <laughs> who, I don't know I've only got one friend who... You've only was... got one... F- Blimey, James. Come on. Yeah. Who wants to be James's friend? Texas 872. Can you acquire friends that way? There we are. There's a feature for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that'll run in one get James a friend well at least you've, you've got me in India so that's two That's two. are you really my friends? Yeah, well I'm, I, don't, I'm not, I don't know if I can speak on India's behalf no, India? No, absolutely. There oh we there we go there we are. There well we that's, are. There a, we are. that's cheered me up on a Thursday well we hope that we can all get together at some point and we can, we can we'll, we'll, we'll get James married India Knight and James Marriott there and of course you can read them in the Times and the Sunday Times every week just get yourself a subscription go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box up next the MPs who fought and died in the First and Second World Wars Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, a special feature looking back at some of the MPs who fought and died in the First and Second World Wars. Today, we mark Armistice Day, commemorating the end of the First World War, remembering all those who've died in both the First and Second World Wars, fighting for Britain and the Allied forces. And, of course, neither war was won from Parliament in Westminster. But it was at the centre of the action, not least during the Second World War, when it's heavily damaged during the Blitz. But on the front line, 24 MPs died in military service during the First World War and 23 in the Second World War. So now we're going to hear from Dr Catherine Wicks of the History of Parliament Trust with four stories of individual MPs, their parliamentary work and their military service. We begin with the grandson of a former Prime Minister who was killed in action. On the 13th of April 1915, William Glynn Charles Gladstone grandson of the late Prime Minister, became the second Member of Parliament to be killed in action during the First World War. He died at the age of 29 near Lavanty in France after being hit in the forehead by a rifle bullet as he tried to locate a German sniper. Gladstone was born in July 1885, 
just after the end of his grandfather's second term as Prime Minister. In September 1911, Gladstone was asked to stand at a by-election in Kilmarnock, where he was elected with an unexpectedly large majority. He wasn't a regular speaker in the Commons, but he made important contributions on the question of the disestablishment of the Welsh Church. He shared his grandfather's commitment to Home Rule for Ireland, speaking in support of the 1912 Government of Ireland Bill. When war broke out in 1914, Gladstone was involved with the recruiting campaign in Flintshire. Although he wrote in August that, far from having the least inclination for military service, I dread it and dislike it intensely, he enlisted himself. With the permission of the Prime Minister and the King, Gladstone's body was exhumed and brought back from France for burial alongside family members at St Daniel's Church, Howarden. He was one of relatively few of those killed in action to be buried at home. His case prompted Major Fabian Ware to secure an order from the Adjutant General banning future repatriations, wishing to have equality for all classes in death. While in the trenches, Gladstone penned what seems a suitable epitaph, reflecting that it is not the length of existence that counts, or what is achieved during that existence, however short. That was the story of William Glynn Charles Gladstone, the grandson of the former Prime Minister William Gladstone, who was the MP for Kilmarnock Burrs. Next, Dr Catherine Wicks tells us of an MP who was the son of a former Chancellor and died in Egypt. Michael Hugh Hicks Beach had served as Tewkesbury's Conservative MP for just over a decade when he was killed in action in Egypt on the 23rd of April 1916. He gained his first political experience as private secretary to his father, Michael Edward Hicks Beach, who had a distinguished ministerial career, notably as Chancellor of the Exchequer under Lord Salisbury. His family had long been settled in Gloucestershire, where his father and grandfather were both Conservative MPs. In 1904, Hicks Beach was chosen to contest the Dukesbury division for the Conservatives at the next general election. Hicks Beach's victory for the Conservatives in 1906 in the face of a Liberal landslide across the country as a whole was helped by his family's traditional local influence. But it also owed much to the frank and genial character of the young candidate himself and the sporting way in which he fought his campaign against apparent odds. Hicks Beach made his maiden speech on the Land Tenure Bill and he took a particular interest in agricultural questions during his time in Parliament, where he was regarded as an effective speaker and generally well-liked. He saw action at Chocolate Hill, Gallipoli in August 1915, being mentioned in dispatches, and then went to Egypt. On the 23rd of April 1916, Hicks Beach was involved in severe fighting at Katia, 30 miles from the Suez Canal, where German and Turkish troops, some mounted on camels, made a surprise attack. Heavily outnumbered, the British withdrew. Hicks Beach was seriously wounded, but was rescued by Corporal William Castle, who, according to one account, under heavy Turkish fire, placed him across his horse and galloped six miles to safety. Sadly, Hicks Beach died of his wounds. That was the story of Michael Hugh Hicks Beach, who was the MP for Tewkesbury. Of course, every story from the First World War is extraordinary, but some involved people who went on to later achieve incredible things. Like the story of Valentine Fleming, who was the father of Ian, who went on to create James Bond. On the 25th of May 1917, the obituary of Valentine Fleming, Conservative MP for South Oxfordshire, appeared in The Times, following his death five days earlier on the Western Front. Its author, WSC, was none other than Winston Churchill. He'd known Fleming not only as a fellow MP, but also as an officer in the same Yeomanry Regiment. A framed copy of this obituary became one of the most cherished possessions of Fleming's son Ian, best known as the creator of James Bond. He was just about to turn nine when his father died. 
born in Fife in 1882, and in January 1907, he was chosen as the prospective Conservative candidate for South Oxfordshire. Fleming worked hard to cultivate support in the constituency, attending 30 meetings in his first two months as candidate. He won a convincing victory over his Liberal opponent in January 1910. However, by April 1913, he decided that he wouldn't stand again when the next election took place. When war broke out in 1914, Fleming, now a captain, enlisted for service with his regiment. He fought at the Battle of Ypres, was twice mentioned in dispatches, and was promoted to the rank of Major. In the early hours of 20th of May 1917, Fleming was one of five members of his squadron killed in a heavy German bombardment while defending Gillemont Farm in northern France. Valentine Fleming was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Order. Churchill remembered his lovable and charming personality, while a fellow officer wrote that, the loss to the regiment is indescribable. He was absolutely our best officer, utterly fearless, full of resource, and perfectly magnificent with his men. That was the story uh, of Valentine Fleming, the MP for South Oxfordshire and father of Ian Fleming, the uh, Bond author. And finally, from Dr Catherine Hicks, a tale of the only MP killed in the First World War to have served in the Royal Flying Corps. Francis McLaren, the Liberal MP for Spalding, was killed in a flying accident on the 30th of August 1917 while training with the Royal Flying Corps. His plane crashed into the sea a mile off the Scottish coast at Montrose. He was rescued by a fishing boat, but didn't regain consciousness and died of his injuries before reaching land. McLaren is the only MP among those killed during the First World War to have served in the Royal Flying Corps. Paying tribute to him in the Commons later that year, the former Prime Minister Asquith, whose son and daughter had been a page boy and bridesmaid at McLaren's wedding in 1911, declared that, We've lost one of our youngest and most loved of our members. He was cut off in a youth of radiant promise, still untarnished by disappointment a man with clear and firm conviction, a faithful and loyal friend. McLaren was first elected for the Spalding Division of Lincolnshire in January 1910, when he became the youngest Liberal member of the Commons, aged 23. He was commissioned as a lieutenant in September 1914 and left for France in October. According to his fellow MP, Josiah Wedgwood, McLaren had got overseas by offering his Rolls-Royce car to the general with himself as chauffeur. In early May, Wedgwood was injured by shrapnel and he credited McLaren with saving his life after he searched for him on the hospital ship and insisted that he be operated on immediately. In Wedgwood's absence, it was McLaren who commanded the armoured cars in a futile attack on the Turkish defences at the Third Battle of Krithia on the 4th of June, the only time they were used during this campaign. Having contracted dysentery, McLaren recovered at home. He was then commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Royal Flying Corps on the 1st of January 1916. He suffered ill health during his training at Brooklands, but he lobbied the War Office to protest against this decision and was reappointed in June 1917. He'd almost completed his advanced training when he was killed. That was the story of Francis McLaren, uh, told by Dr Catherine Ricks from the History of Parliament Trust. Uh, we also heard of the stories of William Gladstone, Michael Hugh Hicks Beach and Valentine Fleming. Coming up, Labour MP and the biographer of Parliament, Chris Bryant, on how the Commons functioned with so many MPs serving overseas during the two world wars. And former soldier turned MP Tom Tugendhat on the impact of serving on his role as a politician. This is Matt Shawley on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future.
Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Join me, Mariella Frostrup, for in-depth discussion of the day's topical news stories. Plus, hear exclusive interviews with new and leading creative voices from the worlds of art, literature, film, music, and more. Explore the ideas that shape our times with original perspectives from across the political and cultural spectrum. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk/strive. This is Matt Chorley on Armistice Day, reflecting on the role of MPs serving in the world wars. So I'm joined now by the Labour MP, Chris Bryant, who's written both a biography of Parliament and a book, The Glamour Boys, about the soldiers who left Westminster and influenced the war. Uh, good morning, Chris. Good morning. Um, how many, I mean, in your, your time picking through the history of Parliament, how many parliamentarians uh, fought in each war? Oh, fought? I mean, hundreds. Hundreds, both in the First World War and, the, and in the Second World War. Um, and if you go uh, in, in Westminster Hall, you know, the great hall that's been there since um, just after the Norman Conquest, right at the top of the steps, there's a memorial to... Um, the MPs, the sons of MPs, uh, and the members of the House of Lords and mem- and staff of the House of Commons who were killed in the First World War. And ironically enough, the, the kind of angel at the top of it was um, uh, hit in the Second World War. Uh, but it's interesting because you've got, um, you know, well, all three leaders of the p- political parties in the First World War lost sons in the First World War. Uh, Asquith most famously lost his, 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 his favourite son, um, who was killed and um, and subsequently, um, uh, like two weeks later, Lloyd George and Winston Churchill moved against him to have him removed as prime minister. And actually, one of the striking things we do a thing on the show every Monday where we look back on uh, a different prime minister each week, and we we sort of reached the period now, the sort of fifties and sixties, where the, the prime ministers themselves had had served or, like you said, had lost people, and that actually it. it, it, it it had a big impact, didn't it, on just the psychology of the people who who were running the country and then went on to run the country? Well, I think it was very difficult, for instance, for Anthony Eden, who'd, who'd seen action in the First World War and um, seen horrors that he never wanted to see again. But, you know, I mean, there are moments, extraordinary moments, like when Winston Churchill had to ring up the head of the garrison at uh, Calais as the evacuation was happening at Dunkirk to tell the garrison commander, who was the brother of a, of a fellow Conservative MP, you have to stay and you will never be able to surrender um, because it was so important that they kept on going and, you know, most of them lost their lives there. And a terribly sad story too about Ronnie Cartland, Barbara Cartland's younger brother. In fact, he should never have served in the armed forces at all because he, he had literally shot himself in the foot. Um, in uh, in a um, an accident at school, and then he managed to have the the ankle his ankle shorn off on a motorbike motorbike accident as well in 1926. But he he managed to steer his way around the, the official medical and joined up to the territorial army. He was a passionate um, opponent of Neville Chamberlain's policy of um, appeasement. Neville Chamberlain hated him. He was one of the people that Chamberlain called the the glamour boys as a way of deriding them and suggesting that there was something effeminate about him. He was. Um, uh, gay um, and had lots of gay friends. When it came to the war, he went. He joined the British Expeditionary Force. They went out to France and uh, Belgium, 
and um, at the key point at the end of May when um, the British are evacuating via Dunkirk, every extra hour saved um, against the German advance is vital, of course. And there's a little town um, perched on a sort of mound in, in, the, in the middle of Flanders Field called Cassel, which had been used in the First World War. Ronnie was in charge of the, um, the anti-tank brigade uh, at Cassel. Um, they were surrounded by Germans. They, the message got back far too late for them to be able to retreat, but it was absolutely essential that they stayed there that extra day because it meant another 100,000 Brits, um, British soldiers were able to evacuate from, from Dunkirk. Anyway, they left late at night um, under cover of darkness. They, they had to muffle their, um, their boots as they left. They had to um, destroy all their equipment at Cassel. Um, and it's one of the very few occasions in, in British history when um, everybody was told it's every man for himself. They had to make their way as best they possibly could to Dunkirk in the hopes of evacuation. Ronnie was with a, some of his troops when they were caught by a panzer division. Um, and as Ronnie stood up, uh, he was shot in the head. And when uh, his sister, Barbara Cartland, and mother were told of this, of this a few months later when the news got back to them, and they discovered that his younger brother, Tony, had died as well, about five miles away the day before. Wow. I mean, and, and I suppose there were so many of these stories repeated again and again and again um, every day. And what impact did it have on the House of Commons and, and, and the operation of, of Parliament? If so many were not there because they were serving and then they died too, what did that mean for in terms of... You know the operation of Parliament, representation of uh, of um, you know areas. If they lost MPs, did, were there were there by elections during the war? Did it or was that yes, put off by until later? And there, there were by elections. Well, I mean, the main thing was, of course, that the Parliaments Act, which said um, that you could you had to have elections every five years, um, was suspended several times, both in the First World War and in the Second World War. So we didn't have general elections, but we did have by elections, and on the whole. Um, not all the, the the opponent parties tended not to stand, but then you had other political parties come into existence uh, solely to stand in the election because they disagreed with the way that the war was being conducted. And you had, I mean, probably the biggest effect was on the House of Lords because in the Second World War, they were lucky if they got into double figures of attendance in the House of Lords. They were, of course, not sitting in the chamber of the House of Lords. The Commons were sitting in the Lords and the Lords were sitting in the royal robing room. But they hardly, you know, I mean, they hardly needed that. They could have sat in the broom cupboard, to be honest. And it's one of the things that I think eventually meant that we had to have life peerages because otherwise the House of Lords simply wasn't going to survive. Now, whether that in the end was the right decision is a, is a matter for um, constitutional historians to battle over. But and, and sometimes, of course, MPs, when they were off, another gay MP, as it happens, uh, Jack McNamara, who was colonel of the London Irish Rifles, he was desperate to fight, to be given a... A command in uh, a place of real uh, battle. Um, on the whole, the government didn't want to put MPs in places where they might get captured, because that would be an additional sort of fillet for 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 the Germans or for the uh, or for the or for our opponents. And um, so they tended to be put in rather boring jobs, looking after aerodromes in Northern Ireland or whatever. Jack did eventually get out to. Uh, the Middle East, or to Africa rather, and then to, to the Adriatic and was one of the first people to go into a liberated Athens and, and ended up being killed when he was with his former troops uh, on, the, on the River Senia. But when he was away, 
all his correspondence was looked after by his next door neighbour, who was uh, who <laughs> was actually a Labour MP, Tom Dryberg. That was Chris Byne, uh, the Labour MP and uh, biographer of Parliament. His also his book, uh, The Glamour Boys, is terrific on uh, on that group of uh, uh, MPs who, as he said, were, were disparaged but actually uh, served with great distinction uh, during the World Wars. Well, let's look now at today's politics. And 45 of today's MPs have served in the armed forces as either a regular or reservist, which is about 7% of the House of Commons, actually higher than the 5% of uh, people in the general public uh, who've got military experience. So what is it about working in the army that leads people to want to then become an MP? Tom Tugendhat is MP for Tunbridge and Malling, chairs the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, uh, but served in both uh, the Iraq War and the war in Afghanistan. And joins me now. Morning, Tom. Morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. This feels like, after starting with the, the, the tales of um, the First and Second World Wars, just to sort of bring it up to date, um, there's obviously a sort of a, a long history of people going from the military uh, into politics, which actually I was quite struck by those figures that even, I was uh, surprised actually it was as many as 45 of the current crop of the House of Commons who've, who, who've served as well. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not that surprised. I mean, there's a there's a there's a there's a small gang of us. Um, you know, there's people like Sarah Atherton and and uh, Johnny Mercer and you know David Davis. You know, I mean, there's quite there's quite a few of us of various various generations and and various levels of experience. And 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 I think that's a really good thing. Uh, um, and what does uh, just describe us first of all what your your military career, and then we'll talk about how that influences your your politics. Where, where, where did you serve? When did you serve? Yeah, so I did a I did a few years um, with a Royal Marines unit, or alongside a Royal Marines unit rather, as, as an intelligence officer, and it was it was fantastic fun. I served some of the best people I've ever met, and uh, and had the great good fortune to go with them to Iraq and then later to Afghanistan, uh, and had a and had a, a very interesting time. I also worked for the Foreign Office and did a few other things too, which was really good fun. Um, and then was it natural for you to go from that into politics? Was that something you always had in mind? It wasn't something I'd always had in mind, but it was certainly something that um, I got more and more interested in. I mean, not not just because you know, front you know, being in the army, you're on the front line of public policy. Frankly, I mean, your government government ideas are what you're sent in to, to to do. But you're working with people from across the United Kingdom, and for me, that was that was what was most interesting. You know, many of us, uh, I'm sure not you, Matt, but many of us live in a, 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 our very own bubbles of people we went to school with, or people we live near, or whatever it is. But one of the great things about about the armed forces is you're forced together with people from not just across the United Kingdom, actually, but across the Commonwealth, and that's and that's fantastic. You know, I met, you know, I worked with one guy who was a sergeant major, who was an extraordinary, wonderful Royal Marine sergeant major, who had been in foster care on and off from the age of three, and I worked with another guy who, um, you know, his grandmother did okay. She ended up as uh, Queen of the United Kingdom. So you know, there's a whole sort of range of people who you can who you can work with. <laughs> And, and what is the value, do you think, of having veterans in the House of Commons today? Well, I, I mean, I think it's important that we have people from sort of every walk of life. I think it's important to have veterans. Of course it is. But it's also important to have, uh, you know, doctors and lawyers and business people and people who are shop workers and people who are social workers. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 the House of Commons should represent the United Kingdom as best as possible. And and it, I, when it's best, it does it, it does it very well. And, you know. I think veterans are an important part of our community, of our society, and so 
I see that as an important community to represent. But you know, I am one, so I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> and, we, and there are, you know, there are, like I was saying, there are reservists um, uh, in the House of Commons, in the House of Commons too. And there's also been this big debate in the last week or so about what MPs get up to and what they do outside the House of Commons too. I mean, there's a, there's a clearly a massive difference between serving your country and, and being a lobbyist. Well, I, I, I think there is, but I mean, you know, it's up to you, you to, you to judge. Look, um, I, look, I think, I think there are many people who, um, who bring experience to House Commons in many, many different ways, uh, and I think that really matters. You know, if you want a cadre of pro- professional politicians who know nothing else other than politics and have grown up as special advisors, fine. Um, but that's a very different kind of representation that you'll get. You'll get effectively a government of bureaucrats rather than a government of representatives. No, that's just a different thing. And how do you how do you feel about the state of of, of the military today? And uh, it does feel like there's quite a lot of sort of problems crossing Ben Wallace's desk as defence secretary. Whether it's this this terrible story about the woman who was murdered in Kenya, the, the talk of the culture in the armed forces uh, more generally as well. Um, what, what do you make of the of the state of the armed forces? Well, I have to say, I mean, I think I think the uh, you know the, I won't be alone. In fact, I know I'm not alone in being utterly appalled by. Um, the alleged murder of, of the woman in Kenya. I mean, it's, it's completely horrific. And I'm delighted that the army is doing absolutely everything it can to uh, help with the investigation. I, it's absolutely the right thing to do, and there's no question about it. But I am concerned at the, the size of the army. It is, frankly, too small. We're now down to about 70-odd thousand. Uh, and uh, if you look at the Royal Navy, you know, we have a couple of major capital ships in the, in the two uh, aircraft carriers. But the reality is we don't have the fleet needed to escort them. You know, we have uh, invested in the armed forces a a bit recently, but given the fact that we're now being challenged in the South Pacific, we're being challenged in Eastern Europe, and indeed the United States has in various different ways uh, put pressure on uh, various of its allies to take more of the burden, quite understandably, uh, we need to think about whether it is, you know, whether the UK still wants to be a rule maker or wants to become a rule taker, because if you don't invest in your defence, if you don't choose to shape allies and and influence by uh, many different ways, you know, not just the armed forces, but through aid and trade and various other things as well, then I'm afraid that's what you're choosing. And sadly, uh, our, our military is now too small and, uh, and that's the direction we're taking. Uh, just finally, because we, we've been talking about the military, we, we just need to reflect on the uh, this story about the, the three MPs accused by the Defence Secretary of disrespecting the armed forces by getting drunk on a flight uh, to visit troops in Gibraltar. Uh, it's obviously t- uh, uh, one Labour MP, two SNP MPs. What do you make of this? Well, uh, two of them at least deny it, so I'm not, I'm not sure how true it is. But, uh, but I have to say, uh, if that is true, it'd be, it'd be pretty rubbish, frankly. I mean, it's just not good behaviour. Tom Tugendhat, really good to speak. Thanks very much for joining us. Tom Tugendhat there, uh, former uh, soldier, now uh, Conservative MP and chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Just rounding off our uh, special uh, half an hour here on Times Radio, uh, which began with marking the two-minute silence uh, of Armistice, of course, the 11 o'clock on the 11th of the 11th. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, If you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via smart speaker or on the Times radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. (laughs) 